Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. This happens to be our seventh show, so we're moving along pretty well. Uh, we've done six shows so far. The last show that we did, we spent the entire show, just so that you know and to make sure that you understand this, we spent the entire show, show six was dedicated to the business plan. Uh, during that time, what I did is I went to the Blackboard website, I downloaded and showed you on TV the forms, I explained how to fill the forms out, uh, the, and remember there's a couple of parts to that. There's going to be a part where you're just essentially gathering data, and we started off on the forms very easily by just asking you what your name was and, you know, when you planned on taking your real estate exam and then, you know, where you wanted to work and all that other kind of stuff. And then later on, what I did is I showed you the financial part because anytime you have a business plan, it, covers two things. One is how you plan on meeting whatever your, you know, in other words, what are your objectives and how you plan on getting those objectives accomplished. But the second thing is financially, how much money is it going to cost, how, when you're going to start earning money, all that kind of stuff is involved. And then I also spend time going over what the finished product may look like. Now, a couple questions that I always get every semester is they say, uh, you know, what does that mean? Well, what it means is I've given you a sample copy of what a report may look like. What I would expect you to do would be have things on there that would pertain to you, not just a Xerox copy of what I did. Uh, but essentially what that final report is showing, and that report is in a certain format. I, I'd like to have, or I want that in a certain, f the format that I show you, which is the narrative part and then the financial report after that. Uh, a couple other things I mentioned to you is that if you need some assistance using the computers or doing something with Excel, there's more than enough time for you to go over to our business area, room B151, which is our uh, open lab for the business and CIS department. All you'll need is some way to prove that you're taking classes here, which is normally with a student ID card. And they'll sit down and ask them and say, listen, I need some help. I'm not taking an Excel class, but I need to fill out this uh, spreadsheet. Can you help me with this? And they should be able to help you. Uh, also remember that we also put up on um, Blackboard what we call the exam schedule. I put another button there. And remember, the reason, there's a reason why I'm not telling you what the dates are, why I want you to go to Blackboard and check that out is because we're rebroadcasting this for other classes. And if I, if I put a date down, what will happen is everybody will say, oh, you said, you know, November 5th, and that's not, you know, this is the spring semester. Why isn't that working? So that's why I'm saying go to Blackboard, because every time I teach this class, I'll always have the new exam schedule up there. The last thing I want to mention about the business plan in relation to the exam schedules, remember, according to the course outline, you are going to become, when you come in to take your second midterm exam, you will have your business plan with you. So what will happen is you'll come in, you'll take the exam, you'll come up to turn your Scantron 8A2 in, and in one pile you'll put your 8A, Scantron 8A2 in, and in the other pile you'll put a copy of your business plan. And you're going to do that on the day that you take your second midterm exam. Okay, with that I'm going to go ahead and move on now to chapter, the next chapter, which is going to be in our textbook is chapter 3. It's going to be talking about the listing agreement. And so we're going to be spending the next couple uh, classes talking about the listing agreement, what a listing agreement is, how you go about filling it out. I'm going to spend some time on explaining the agreement itself. Again, this agreement is in very, very fine type, and it's very hard for me to really project this very clearly. So I'm going to depend upon you opening up your textbook and following along as I am explaining it on the TV. And also, for those of you that are watching this with st streaming video, which a lot of you are, 
make sure that you have your book open when we're doing this because these forms, again, are very hard for me to blow up and make them really, really clear on, on, the, uh, on, the, um, on the TV screen or on, uh, through streaming. So with that, I'm going to move over here to the document camera, and I've already brought up in the room here my, um, this page. This is in this book here. It's in Chapter 3, page 75. It's talking about the listing agreement, how to secure an, or, uh, an offer to sell. Uh, basically, I'm going to read some of this and then sort of emphasize it to you. This is the point when we're talking about a listing agreement is where you are looking at a, a client, a customer, is looking at hiring you who is a real estate agent with the concept in mind is that you are going to be their agent representing them with the purposes of trying to sell their property, their home, their land, their office building, their shopping center, whatever this happens to be. This is called a listing agreement. This listing agreement for all intents and purposes is an employment agreement, if you will, between you and the seller of the property. The purpose of this agreement is going to set forth what is actually going to be sold. In other words, what, part, what is the real property that's going to be sold? Is there any personal property that's going to be included or excluded? How much money am I going to get paid? Am I going to pay, get paid a flat fee or am I going to get paid a commission? How long of a period of time is this agreement going to exist? In other words, it's going to start on a certain day and it's going to end on a certain day. Okay, um, So it's going to cover all of those details that are important. And when you're working with a real estate broker, what's going to happen is you'll go out and you'll visit with the client. We'll talk about that probably near the next uh, show about how you actually prepare to go for a listing appointment, which is very, very important, preparing for that. But what's going to happen is, is that after you have left the client's house and you have the client fill out all this information, then if you're a new sales agent, what's going to happen is your broker, hopefully, is going to want to sit down and look at all the documentation that you have taken Make sure everything is correct before you submit it to the multiple listing system or put ads in the paper or anything like that, okay? So again, you're always going to have to, as long as you're a salesperson, you're going to have to have your broker go over these and make sure you're doing everything correctly. And by the way, I have no problem with anybody looking over any work that I ever do. I just got off the phone this morning. We were talking about curriculum. I've done curriculum a lot, but I have no problem with other people looking over and giving me advice and counsel. You know, that's a good way. That helps you eliminate a lot of problems, a lot of mistakes, okay? So anyway, under a listing agreement, I'll just read this. It says, a listing is a contract in which the principal, okay, who is the homeowner or the owner of the property. By the way, remember that the people that own the property all have to sign the agreement. So you can't have just the husband sign the agreement and not the wife. Both have to sign the agreement. If you're in a partnership and there's three or four or five people that own it, they all have to sign the agreement for it to be valid. You cannot sell property to somebody else without every, the people that are currently entitled knowing about it, okay? Uh, anyway, w which the principal employs an agent or a broker to do certain things for the principal, usually selling his or her property. It is often called a residential listing agreement and most commonly used CAR, CAR means California Association of Realtors, listing form is, is subtitled Exclusive Authorization and Right to Sell. We'll talk about different types of listings this happens to be the one in which you're getting the exclusive right to sell. And that's very, very important when we talk about those different types of listings because this is really giving you the power as the only one that's going to be selling it. And therefore, you're going to work very, very hard to sell it. Because, you know, in other words, you'll be covered like, uh, for example, if, 
If somebody knocks on the owner's door at 9 o'clock at night and says, I love this house, I want to buy it, and the seller was to go ahead and sell it, they still have to pay you. Okay, so it's a good way for you to make sure you're going to get paid your commission. Very, very important. This is the most common type of agreement. An agent holding a listing is bound to the law of agency and owes certain duties to his or her principal. The buyer and the seller, on the other hand, are two principals, yet not bound by the laws of agency. Remember, the law of agency has to do with the fact that it's covering things where you're being hired to represent somebody else. Okay, that's the concept behind here. Just like I said before, if you're a basketball star and you're going to hire an agent to represent you before the Pepsi commercial or the Coke commercial or, I don't know, the McDonald's commercial, whatever it happens to be, you're representing their interests. Okay. Down below that, it says agency is a relationship between the principal, usually a buyer or a seller, because you can have, a, you could have, in, in reality, an agreement in which you're going to list the property for sale, you have the listing, or you could have an agreement where you are listing, if you will, the buyer, not with this form, but where you have an exclusive right to represent a buyer. So in other words, a buyer walks into your office or open house on a Saturday or Sunday and asks you to look for some property, and you, and you think to yourself, okay, they're asking me to do this, but before I put a lot of time and effort into it and spend all my precious gas money to do this, what I want to do is know that I'm doing it with, some, with the idea in mind that at least I stand a fair chance of finding a piece of property. A good example of that is you go ahead out and you carry a bunch of people around town and you spend a couple weekends showing them property, and then all of a sudden they're out stop by some open house and decide to go buy it and they get and, and the agent that's sitting there is the one that gets the commission for it and so if you want to try to help prevent that from happening if you're working with a buyer and you're going to put out a tremendous amount of effort you may very well want to sit down talk to your broker and then talk to them about signing an exclusive right for you to represent them as a buyer okay it's a way for you to protect it because it's really very very hard business remember the only way that you're going to get paid your commission is when you finally do produce a willing buyer or a willing seller you know, and you don't want to go to a lot of work and find out, hey, listen, I'm not going to get paid. That's terrible. Do that a couple times, and that'll cure you of <laughs> very quickly. You know. Anyway, down below here it says a listing is then a listing then is a contract of employment wherein the principal hires the services of the agent, a licensed real estate broker, to perform the prescribed services. Remember, when you have a listing agreement, they keep talking about the fact that you're hiring a broker. Listings belong to the broker. They do not belong to you. So even so, you, were, you go out and you procure the listing. If you got really angry with the broker after you worked for them for a few months and you said, that's it, I quit, I quit. I'm taking my listings with me. You go, you can't take your listings with you. They're the broker's listings. That's the law. You just have to know that, okay? In fact, when you, if you decided to quit, one of the things that the broker would do is probably have to establish some kind of a relationship and say, listen, this is how, who's going to take over your listings. If they're sold, this is how you're going to get paid. Okay. Um, usually these involve the selling or exchanging of real property of the owner, principal, but the definition can be much wider than this. On occasion, an agent may be employed to represent a potential buyer to purchase a certain type of property to seek out and to negotiate rental or leasehold property or to represent prospective borrower in a trust uh, trustee program, meaning that you're going to look to buy. What they're essentially talking about is this way. You could have, we always think about buying and selling property, but if you go around town, you look at these large shopping centers, office buildings, things like that, the way that those things are handled is somebody calls an agent, okay? 
that handles that kind of property and says, you know, I am with uh, ABC accounting firm, a national firm, you know, in, in the country, and I want you to help me find an office that we can move our staff here, okay? So you, after you discuss that, you may very well sign an agreement with that person in which you're going to go out and look for office space for those people and negotiate the lease. That's a whole separate area you can do that. Same thing when they're talking about a trustee. You may very well find somebody where you're working for a mortgage brokerage company, and the person comes in and says, listen, I am tired of investing in the stock market. What I'd like to do is invest in real estate. I don't want to own and operate it, but I do want to invest in it. I'd like to invest in deeds of trust. Can you find me people that currently have deeds of trust on existing properties that want to sell them, okay, and I am willing to buy them? at a discount, of course, all right? In that case, you may very well have them sign an agreement. Did you have a question there, young man, who's gonna push the button on the right-hand side there? Bob, get him up on camera, there he is. Uh, I have a question. The leads that, say if you quit, mm -hmm. the leads that are with that company, whose responsibility is it to keep up and see if it's sold or not? Okay, his question is, okay, you said leads. Leads, is always, leads to me always means, uh, it's some sort of an indication like a postcard or something. Somebody said, come out and talk to me. I'm thinking about doing something, okay? Well, references, uh, at my job, we call them leads or references or people you're working with. Right. Those people, is it your responsibility if they sold, if they get sold, is it your responsibility to keep up with it or would they tell you? What would happen is if you were working for, that's why I really stress, especially in my principal's class, that you really want to spend the time to go out and find the right brokerage that's going to work for you, okay? Because if you work for somebody for a couple months and go, this is not working, I hate this person or I hate this company, now you've got to go through all this effort of new business cards, new stationery, contacting your friends, and on top of that, you may very well have listings. If you have listings with that company, remember the broker owns the listings. So if you decide to leave, what has to happen is either the broker is going to take your listings over and finish the process out, or they're going to appoint another agent to take it over. And you may have listings in different stages. You may have a listing that you just got a couple weeks ago in which you're going to hold an open house. Okay, you have a listing that's in the process where you're negotiating an offer to buy and sell, and you may have a couple properties that are in escrow. Okay, so again, when you sit down with that broker, you need to talk about not only how am I going to get into this agreement, but how am I going to get out of this agreement. So if I, six months later, realize I don't like you anymore, you know, you know, you need to look at the bottom, which is how are you going to get out of the contract and who's going to handle the listings and how you're going to get compensated for that, okay? Is that pretty clear? Uh-huh. All right, say if the customer only wants to talk with you and build up a great relationship with just you uh -huh. as the agent and they trust you and mm -hmm. they don't want to work with another agent, can you still sell them from another broker like... Um, Sell them from another place, still belonging to the place you just fired. You got you quit from. Okay. Well, you didn't get fired. You probably oh, quit. You okay. Well, you okay. Quit. Um, essentially, you're talking about two different things. If you have an agreement with somebody, you have a you have if you have a, a listing agreement in which you're going to be marketing somebody's house, you have an agreement. You have a written legal document that says that that's going to last for 60, 30 days, 90 days, 120 days, or whatever. And that agreement stays into effect until, unless one or the other of you decide to terminate it. 
You know, in other words, you, you may say to a client, listen, it's obvious I'm not working with you. You know, you and I don't get along. We're wasting our time. Go find somebody else. Or the client may fire you. But if everybody's happy and the things are moving along, then that contract is going to take and stay in effect as long as, and the broker is going to finish it off. The broker owns that contract, okay? Uh, you know, you and of course, any of that stuff gets to be very touchy. Okay, very, very touchy, uh, how you handle that. That's why you really want to think far enough ahead. If you're going to terminate your, your relationship with a brokerage, you really want to think about ahead of time how you're going to do that. Because you may very well, the, re the reason why is because people will buy from you. People will list their houses f with you. Maybe not even because of the company that you work for, it's because of you. People will do business with the company because you and that client like each other for whatever reason. You know, you have a demeanor that they like. You know, you tell funny jokes. They don't like me because I don't tell funny jokes. God knows why people do business with whoever they do business with. There's certain commonalities, but there's a lot of unique things. And so that's a very important part of the business. You know, but the, thing, the only thing I can tell you is that if you're with a company, you want to think about when you go with them, you want to think about how you're going to get out of the transaction in the end, and you also you want to plan that if you're going to leave. I can't think of anything else. We could sit here and talk about a, different, a lot of different ways, but you really want to think the process through, okay? And think about those clients you're going to leave behind that are there because they like you, okay? You're going to find out that in this business, you're going to be successful by and large because of you. You. You're the one that's going to make your success. I mean, a lot of companies will tell you that they're going to provide you a lot of support and a lot of training, and that's true. But what's important about your success is that you get out of bed in the morning and you go to work, okay? And people that don't do that are not successful. You know, I mean, you just sit there, and it's amazing how I've seen people where they go into a company, and the company, you say to the broker, and you say, well, what do I need to do in order to be successful? And, the, and, and literally, the per it's amazing. I mean, the person sits there and says, what do I need to do? And they write this down. And then five, six months later, they're really successful. And, and, and they do it like a no-brainer. And they say, well, how come you're doing so well? And they say, well, my broker told me to do these 10 things, and I'm doing them. I, he told me to do this. And <laughs> just, you didn't put any out of the thought. These are tried and true things. You know, like, listen, you know, in order for you to get listings, you have to hold some open houses. And you just, oh, okay, I'll do that, you know. And you need to talk to some people. Yes, I'll do that. And you go... You're busy. In the meantime, there's a lot of other people that are not doing well, and the reason why is because they're trying to second-guess everybody. You know, I, I'm just absolutely flabbergasted. Uh, in fact, I'll mention one thing, and then I'll move on. I remember when I was in, in the title insurance business, I would go into this one office. It was a Western National, big office, and there was a lot of agents in there, and a lot of these agents sometimes will sit around and talk to each other and talk themselves, t tell them how bad the business is and not making any money. And there was some young gal over there that had just started in the business, and she was doing really, really well. And you know the reason why she was doing well? Somebody forgot to tell her that the business was bad at that time. She was just doing what people told her to do, and she was just doing really well. You know, a lot of times people talk themselves out of success because they listen to the negative vibes. They just don't do what's necessary, you know. I mean, if you, if you know that if, in order, if, you know, statistically after a while, you'll know in order to, to, to sell so many houses or find buyers, that you need to, t you'll have a number in your mind. You'll say, listen, I know I need to talk to about 10 or 15 people, okay? And then you'll say, well, if I want to do more, I just need to talk to more people. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, that's, it's, I don't want to say it's complicated, but it's not. It's, 
because when you when you deal with the numbers, then that allows you to make mistakes. You go, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have said that to that client. That you know, I mean, I think I upset them. Uh, maybe I turned them off. Maybe I thought that, that you know it'd be difficult for them to get this house. And you really are constrained if you're only talking to a limited number of people and you go, God, I made a mistake. It's terrible. I'm going to fail in the business. But on the other hand, if you say, listen, I am going to make mistakes. I'm going to put my foot in my mouth at the wrong time. The only thing I have control over is how many people I talk to. So when I make a mistake, I'll just go next. <laughs> you know, who's the next, you know, not, not victim, but who's the next person? You know what I mean? You know, that's the only control you have over things. You know, it's, it's amazing, you know. So anyway, so we talked about the listing agreement. Okay, that part. Okay. Um, I'm going to read a couple of these things. It says here in this bold type, and they've changed the color of the type. It says, in California, this is on page 75, in California, as in most other states, employment contracts must be in writing to be enforceable. Essentially, that means that when you have a listing agreement, you have to have it in writing. Okay? You have to have it in writing for it to be enforceable. Okay? A real estate employment contract is the listing agreement, but as a signed disclosure of the agency relationship is also required. Death of either the seller or the broker terminates the listing contract. That's another important thing. If you're driving down the road, you know, two weeks later, you know, and you're the broker or the brokerage and you, you get killed, then that agreement is then nullified. Okay, same thing with the seller because you have a, an agreement that's going to live. It does, in other words, it's not the estate that carries the agreement on. It terminates upon the death of either one of the individuals. Okay, also right to commission. It says a commission, uh, the listing contract is basically a bilateral, and bilateral means two parties. Uh, two parties exchange promises. In other words, the promises you're doing, you, you're saying I, Pat Hogarty, who works for Keller Williams, hereby promise that I am going to do everything in my power to sell your house starting tomorrow, okay? And, you know, and, you, you know, and I'm going, you know, and if I do that, then I'm going to request from you a commission in the amount of, and, you know, state whatever the commission is. So I'm promising I'm going to do that. You're also promising. You're saying, okay, Pat, if you promise to do that, then I promise... <laughs> to pay you for doing the work. So it's a promise. Your, your promises are in a contract. Okay. Um, of employment for the purposes of finding a buyer. The agent is not employed to convey title, meaning the fact that you are not, you're, you're, you have a fiduciary responsibility. You're not the one that signs the paperwork that transfers the property from one party to the other. In other words, you bring the parties together and then they sign the documents. Okay. Uh, the commission is therefore earned when you, the broker, have produced a buyer who is ready, willing, and able to purchase at the price and under the general agreement of both the buyer and the seller, whether or not escrow closes. Another important point is this. If you're working with a client and you have worked very, very hard and you, you know, the client, your client has told you what they are looking for in their sales price and their terms and you have you know, and the qualifications of the person that you want to buy it. Like, for example, the person has to be able to have a letter that shows that they actually are able to get a loan. I mean, once you produce all of that, okay, then you have earned the right to receive the commission. And what's significant about this is that if you've entered into a contract and now you, you get all done and people are signed and now the listing you're opening, now you open up escrow, and the buyer or the seller calls up and says, excuse me, I changed my mind. 
Okay, I don't want to buy or I don't want to sell. You have done everything you needed to do to produce the buyer and the seller or, or you know, the buyer for the property. Therefore, you have earned a commission, okay, and a commission that you are, you know, you should be getting paid. And the reason for that is, is that you don't want to be where you're actually going out and finding, listing the property, finding a buyer, getting it in escrow, and then turn around and have the, uh, have the person that owns the property say, thank you very much, I'm not going to pay you. No, they have to pay you. Okay, they have to. They're required to do that. Okay. Um, so there's quite a bit else on there. What I'm going to do now is move on to the actual residential listing agreement. This happens to be for the purposes of this, and we're in the fifth edition of this book. Okay, this happens to be on page 75. If ever you're using any editions in the past or in the future, it could possibly be on the same page. But the con contracts that I'm going to be using are pretty well standardized. This happens to be, and I'm going to read this from the top, okay, I want you to see, first of all, this is sort of like what the document looks like. I think this document has one, two, three pages to it. This is the basic document. Uh, one thing I want you to keep in mind is that this document can also have an, a number of addendums or additional things that are justifying, in other words, like if we say something like, listen, the following, you know, personal property is going to be transferred with the sale of it. Uh, as an example, if you had somebody that was going to be leaving the United States and going to another country, you know, they're going to go there for three or four years. And they're going to go to a country in which their house is going to be extremely small. They have no interest in holding on to their furniture. They bought it all on, at Ikea. There's no family heirlooms. There's no, you know, in other words, there's nothing there that really wants them to hold on to it. What they may very well say is, listen, I'm going to sell the house, and with the house comes the furniture. Okay? So you may very well have par portions of personal property that will go with the house, okay? Some of it may be an incentive to the buyers to buy it, you know, because they're going to walk in and they'll have a fully furnished house. Uh, so anyway, just so that you know that, okay? A couple things I want you to notice up here at the top left-hand corner. Notice that this document is made or created or updated and kept up to date by somebody called the California Association of Realtors right here. Very, very important that we always have the most current contract, the most current, because remember the laws change, and some of them change, have major changes them, and some of them have minor changes. What we don't want to do is be in a contract with a client or have our client sign a contract in which all of a sudden when they sign it, they're actually signing something that can be voided because the law has now changed. So we always want to make sure. That's why we have six or eight real estate attorneys that work for the California Association of Realtors, make sure this junk is always up to date. Okay. Next thing is I want you to notice in the middle of this, it says this is an exclusive listing agreement, exclusive, and exclusive authorization and right to sell and the name of the form. Okay, so that you know that that is, you know, that that's the type of agreement that we have because we'll be talking about different other kinds of agreements, open listings, things like that. I'm going to zoom back out again. I'm going to talk a little bit about what's in this paragraph right here. Okay, I'm going to bring this up. Notice that this says this is, hopefully we'll be able to see this. You may or may not be able to see it. This is an exclusive right to sell. And this is where you put the seller's name right in here on this form. Okay, so this would be like Mary J. Hogarty and Patrick J. Hogarty. Okay, names of the sellers, names of who owns it. That's who we should be signing at the other end of the agreement. Okay. Thereby employs and grants who the broker is. Who is the broker that is being employed to sell this? Keller Williams, 
And you know very well they may have internal names of the company. It may be called Keller Williams is a big name, but they may be calling Keller Williams Gold River Office or some other name. But you want to know who's the name of the broker. Uh, it's going to have a couple dates here. It's going to have a beginning date, okay, and it's going to have a, a, a what they call a listing period, okay. What this amounts to is is that this agreement is going to start on a certain date and end at a certain date. It's going to be assumed that whenever that date hits, the agreement is done. In fact, one of the things that you're going to want to pay attention to is, is that you, when you sign a listing agreement, most of the times your brokers are going to tell you something like, listen, you need to get a listing agreement and have it for six months. Keep in mind that they're also telling the sellers at the same time, in other words, the newspaper articles and magazine articles are saying, listen, you don't, shouldn't really be signing an agreement for six months. You know, you want to find out whether or not this agent's really do, going to work for you. You know, so there's always this confrontation goes back and forth. On the broker side, they're saying, listen, I want to have the maximum amount of time necessary for me to do all the time and effort to get this house sold. It's going to take some time. And on the on the, on the client side, they're saying, listen, you need to get on the stick. My house is the most important house in your entire life. You need to go to work. You need to hold open houses. You need to spend all of your advertising budget on selling my house. Okay, so that's the, that's the confrontation between the two of them. But the point is, is that there is a beginning and an ending date. The other thing is, is that if you are in a contract and you start going, I mean, if you sign a 90-day listing, 90 days to sell a house, I'm here to tell you that probably 30 of those 90 days are going to be spent trying to, even after you've opened escrow, to try to find a lender, getting the person approved, getting all the paperwork taken care of, the title reports, the termite reports, and everything else. So if you do 90 days, you're probably going to lose 30 days within the 90 just after it's an escrow to get these things taken care of. The point is this. You're going to want to keep an eye on this contract and all your contracts to make sure they don't expire. So if you're getting close to the thing, you need to be talking to the broker and say, what do we need to do in order to extend this listing agreement so that I can still continue to represent this person? Okay, you want to just ask the question, make sure that you're, you're uh, able to do that. Down below here, and I'm going to kind of blow this up and move it around a little bit, it says what county you're located in. Okay, so here you're talking about the county. Okay, and this is the assessor's parcel number. You may say, where do I get the assessor's parcel number from? There's a lot of sources, but then that is the one that when I tell you about the fact of working with a title insurance company, why you want to work with them. Because when you work with them and you go out for the listing appointment, if you call a couple days beforehand, the title company will put together for you something called a property profile or a listing package, depending upon the company. And in there, we'll have the most current copy of the grant deed, deed of trust, plat map, tax roll, with all the different dimensions and all kinds of information. That's one of the areas where you'll be able to get the assessor's parcel number, okay, to be able to put that down. Because the normal person, normal consumer, if you walked up to them in the street and say, do you own a house? And they'd say, yeah, and say, do you know your assessor's parcel number? They go, I have no idea. You know, so what you're going to have to do is go to the title company, and then what you do is you cross-reference that with the address of the property. Make sure you have the right number. Okay. Then in here, you're going to have whatever the property is described as, and this typically is not going to be a legal address. It's going to be something like 123 Main Street. Okay. In other words, what property are we talking about? If it's, if it's a condo unit, it might be 737 uh, Main Street, unit number 10. Okay. In other words, it has to be descriptive of what it is that you're actually selling. Okay. Uh, down below here, they say items ex excluded and included. 
in the in the sale of the property. And I'm going to kind of read this to you. I'm going to kind of maybe blow back out of here a little bit. But in your book, it says item ex excluded included unless otherwise specified in the real estate purchase agreement. Uh, if I can see this, all fixtures and does that say fittings that are attached to the property are included and personal property items are excluded from the purchase price. So they're making a flat out statement. They're saying anything that is attached. Remember how in real estate principles we talked about methods of attachment, whether things were permanent, were they bolted down, screwed down, concrete, riveted together, whatever. This is another important thing where you want to walk, talk to the client and say, go room by room. You know, very important. Do the drapes stay? Yes or no. Do the vertical blinds stay? Yes or no. I don't know whether you've ever priced those things out, but they are not cheap. That stuff is not cheap. My house, when I, my house, just for my first floor of my house, my brand new house when I built it, we put in what we call Hunter Douglas. They're blinds and they're shutters and stuff. Just the first floor of the house was $14,000. So this stuff is not cheap. The problem is, is a lot of times that stuff is custom made and it only fits in that house. But people will say, listen, I spent $14,000. I want to take that with me. Okay? So you need to say, did the drapes stay? Did the shutters stay? Did the, you know, what stays and what doesn't? And go room by room. Make sure. Okay? Um, additional items that are excluded. If there's anything that needs to be excluded, okay, such as items that could be considered to be real property but a really personal property. And I think I've used this, I know, in one of my classes as being like a, a dishwasher that may appear to be built in but it's not as portable, a refrigerator that may be, appear to be built in but it's portable. Anything that you think that might be that the owner says, I'm going to take that with me, okay, then that needs to be listed, okay. Uh, additional items included, uh, if you're going to put some stuff in there, in other words, if you're going to leave some stuff that normally wouldn't be considered to be part of the real property. When I sold my house, I had this big bookcase, and I really had no need for it. Oh, well, I had garage shelves, you know, those cabinets you buy in Home Depot, and they were on the floor. I had no need for I didn't want them. I didn't want to pack them up. I didn't want to take them with me. So I said, guess what? I'm leaving them, okay? So if I want to leave those things, I can put that in there, okay? Again, if there's any question about it, it may take... We're giving you generalities. It may take that you have to drag the broker over and say, what should I do with this situation here? Okay. Listing price and terms. The listing price shall be whatever the price is, okay, and then the dollar figure. And what you're doing is you're doing both. You're handwriting it out like you did a check, and you're putting a dollar figure. So the whole concept there is that if somebody reads it and says, did they really mean 13 hundred dollars, thirteen thousand, a hundred and thirty thousand, or one million. You know, what do they mean by that? You have two ways of validating that, okay? And then any additional terms that you may have. Uh, terms could be, uh, and they could get, get fairly lengthy. That could be things such as, you know, uh, buy, a seller wants to, you know, lease back from buyer for the first three weeks you know any in other words anything that you would have things that would normally be considered be where seller wants to sell the house and uh, Bob we lost a signal on the TV in the back yeah, the, okay okay, there it is. okay if the seller if the seller wants to uh, uh, let me think now for a minute if the seller wants to sell the house I really got thrown off there let me think for a minute 
I'll think about it in a minute. This, ha this is what we call a senior moment. I can't remember right now. <laughs> okay. Additional terms. Um, you know, just anything that's additional, that's not normal. Oh, I know. Like, for example, the seller wants to sell the property, but they want to be able to rent it back if necessary for, you know, if, if the house closes, say, in the beginning of August, and they need they can't they can't move out really to August 15th. They may very well want to put in there that the that the new buyer is going to take possession on the 15th of August, okay? Or if there's certain special types of terms, like for example, uh, that the that the buyer only wants to do conventional or the seller only wants conventional financing, no FHA or VA financing, mainly because of the fact that they think it's going to take too long, okay? Or they're going to limit the amount of points that they're going to pay. In other words, any additional terms that are going to be part of the contract, you're going to list there. Uh, this is the compensation to the brokers. It says the amount or rate of real estate commission is not fixed by law. Notice that that's in bold print. Okay, so you're notifying the client that, listen, this is not fixed in law. They are set by the broker and individually may be negotiated between the seller and the broker. Okay, and you may very well get clients that will want to negotiate. They'll want to say, listen, I'm not going to pay you 6%. I want to pay you 5%. I want to pay you 4%. Again, that's based on you and your, your brokerage, how they want to handle that. Uh, I will tell you that unless the market is hot as a pistol, what happens is, is he, and the commissions get to be very large. You get, start talking about million-dollar houses, you're talking about quite a bit of money. You know, you're talking about a million-dollar house is $60,000 in commission. It's a lot of money. And so consequently, the buyer may ver or the seller may very well want to start negotiating with you when you get to a certain point and say, listen, how about if we give you, you know, 5% on the... 6% up to a half a million and then 5% on up to a million or some some again your broker has to work with you on how you're going to handle that. The other thing to keep in mind too is is that when you accept to work for less money you also if you're going to put this in the MLS system remember somebody on the other side may very well say listen I you know if I have a choice between your house to show and another house to show I'm not going to tell you this but I'm going to look at the two this guy pays me six percent, and you're gonna, you know, pays me, you know, half the commission, which is half of six is three, and you're gonna pay me half of four, which is two. I'm gonna sell the other one, you know, and 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 the thing is, is that nobody's going to admit to it. Nobody's gonna say that that's what it is. But you think to yourself, do you want to work? If somebody offers you a job, I'm gonna either pay you ten dollars or twenty dollars an hour. Which one are you gonna pick? Everything else remaining the same. So keep in mind that when you do when you do negotiate commissions. You have to think about the possibility of somebody else on the other side selling it and whether they're willing to work. Commissions I've seen people negotiate would be something where a listing agent, the person that lists the property, will say something like this. They'll say, listen, the commission is 6%, but if I, Pat Hogarty, who is your listing agent, if I procure and find somebody ready, willing, and able to buy, then I will lower my commission to 5 Well, you really think about it. That sounds really good, and it really entices the person to, to list with you, but they're not really lowering their commission. What they're doing is they're saying, listen, <coughs> under normal circumstances, I would list this house for sale, and somebody else would sell it. Probably maybe even another company would sell it. Okay, I listed on Lion Realtors. Colwell Banker sells it. If it's a million bucks, we get 15, they get 15. Okay. But keep in mind, and then, and then, and then my portion is going to be broken down based on my relationship with the broker. So if I'm going to get 50 of 50% of the 50%, if, if I, my broker gets 15, I'm going to get 7,500. But if I not only list it but find a buyer 
means that the deal does not go to another brokerage. So there's more money in the pot for that brokerage, okay? And there's no other agent to split with it. So if I manage to not only list it and sell it, I could possibly, even at 5%, I could earn a substantially bigger commission <laughs> at 5% than I could at 6 So, So all I'm really doing as an agent is I'm saying if that happens, I'm more than willing to share the wealth. That's what you're really saying, okay? And, and you just do the math, and you'll figure that out. I mean, it, it really comes out that way. But remember, you're only obligating yourself. You're not obligating the other company. You're saying, hey, listen, if, if I list it and that other company sells it, then we gotta, we got to go full freight, okay? Um, okay, down here below this, it talks about the, um, okay, real estate commission. Seller agrees to pay the broker as uh, compensation for the services uh, of the agency relationship, either a percent, and then that's where you put like 6%, or you're going to have a certain amount of money, okay? In other words, 6%, 6% is gonna be calculated on the sales price, and a flat fee is gonna be calculated regardless of what the deal goes for, okay? Um, I'm gonna kind of zoom through these from this point on. That's your compensation to your broker, and there's a lot of compensation issues down here about MLS and how sharing commissions and stuff, so you're gonna to wanna to kind of read that stuff, okay? All right, so that's that page. Um, a couple other things that you're noticing, and remember, both people have to sign this. And by the way, this is no, not all the forms. I hate to tell you this. There's also things called disclosure forms that have to be filled out, okay, which is another issue. Um, down here, you're, remember, you're reiterating the property address and the date. It says ownership, title, and authority. Seller warrants that the seller is the owner of the property, okay? Very, very important. What you're trying to do is say to this, you know, the seller, the person that says they're the seller, that they actually own it. They have the right to sell it. Okay, that's essentially what that paragraph is saying. This part here is talking about multiple listing system. Okay, in other words, when you go into this cooperative called multiple listing, there's a set of rules and laws you have to abide by and splits of commission. So it's talking about that, and you're really telling the people that you're going to be advertising or putting this house into the multiple listing system. In fact, when you do the listing appointment with the client, you should explain all the things that are going to happen from start to finish. You know, I mean, you should tell them there's a timeline that's going to have, be followed. From that day forward, there's a timeline. The minute they sign that agreement that night or that day, and your broker reviews it and says it's a good agreement, okay, everything is okay, then what you're going to do is you're going to put it in the MLS system. Okay, that's going to be the, one of the first steps you're going to do. You're going to do things like order a sign for outside of the house. You know, maybe another sign that says three bedroom, two bath or something, you know, or great looking view or whatever it happens to be. You're going to set up things like having tours for the other brokers to come in and take a look at it, which you're probably going to have. And you need to tell the people. In other words, what I'm trying to stress is that you need to take this timeline of events that are going to happen under a traditional listing and tell the clients what's going on. Say, this is what's going to happen from the, right now to the day that we close and I bring you over that bottle of champagne and that plant. These are the activities that you're going to do. And those are important because the clients need to understand that there are things that need to be done that are going to take time. As an example, you may very well want to say to a client, listen, one of the things that can take quite a bit of time is if, if the termite person finds any damage. Now, the actual termite inspection does not take that long, and the actual production of the report doesn't take that long. You know, we could have a termite guy out here in a couple days or a week or so, and they could write the report. 
The problem is, is if they find something wrong, you're going to have to get it fixed. And so you may very well want to get that process start right away. Okay, get somebody out here, find out what kind of problems we may have, because if you do find something that you, and then tell them, give them some examples. I had a house that did this. The house looked beautiful, you know, crystal clear, beautiful backyard. You know, tell them, give them examples and say, listen, the client did not realize that the porch in the backyard had, was infested with termites. We had to rip the whole thing down and get it replaced. That took a month's worth of work by the time we got contracts, found a contractor, got the materials and put it in. So you need to tell the clients. The concept is, is anything that they can get done ahead of time will help the deal move along smoother. It's a lot better to have those problems in the beginning and get them resolved than it is to have it at the end when you're up against the wall, the deal's got to close, the, you know, the, the financing's on the line, and you're about ready to have a heart attack as you go 90 miles an hour down the road to some place to try to, del to deliver documents at the last minute. It's better to get as much done in the beginning as you That's my philosophy, at least. Somebody else may disagree with me. Uh, this is just talking about seller's representations, that you're going to be representing the seller. This is the broker, broker's and seller's duties, okay? Then this is something here called about the deposit when the money comes in, which you're going to be doing with the money. It says uh, the broker is authorized to accept and to hold the seller's, uh, seller's be on the seller's behalf any deposits that are applied to the purchase price. All that essentially means is that Remember, whenever you get an offer on a house, it's not good unless it has money to go along with it. That money then has to be deposited someplace. There's only two choices that you have. You're either going to deposit it in the broker's trust account or with the escrow company, one or the other. That's the consideration for the contract. That shows then that they are really interested. You know, they could sign out all the paper they want, but if they don't put any money on the line, it's not going to work. Um, this is talking about agency disclosures. The bottom line is, is that any time you deal with a client, you're going to have to tell them who you represent. Okay? I'm representing the seller. In fact, there are forms, disclosure forms, you're going to have them fill out. You're going to fill out. They're going to fill out. They're going to sign in which they're notified who you're representing. And remember, you could be representing a seller. You could be representing just the buyer. Or you could be representing both the seller and the buyer. And all parties need to know who it is that you're really representing so they're comfortable. You know, they don't want to go, well, I really can't say anything to Pat because he's really listing, you know, working with the, the seller. You need to know who, who it is the client does. This is talking about uh, security and insurance. This is another one. Um, you're going to put a lockbox on the house. One of the things that you should be doing with your clients is talking to them about, listen, there are people that are going to be coming into your house. You know, you need to do this in a nice way, but you need to let them know that things that are valuable that they would normally have laying around, you know, like for example, if, if, the, if, if the wife comes home at night and takes off all her jewelry and just lays it, on the, lays it on, the, on the bathroom vanity, don't do that, okay? Just don't do that. You know, don't, do, don't take your wallet out and leave it on the counter. Tell your clients that they need to get used to the fact of locking up all the stuff that could possibly be pilfered. And the reason why is because what you want to do is you want the client to have an assurance that they're doing everything in their power to prevent that from happening. So that when issues come up, like say, for example, somebody says, well, you had an open house this weekend and my wallet's missing. You don't want to deal with that kind of stuff. What you want to do is say, listen, I'm here to tell you that there's no way that either you or I can control this. Uh, 
you know, we have no way of controlling who, who comes in here. We try our level best to get people that are well screened and make sure that they are, but there's no way we can really control this 100%. So all those valuables that you have, lock them away. Put them out of the way. Okay, lock them up. No jewelry on the countertop, no wallets left out, no CDs left out. Make sure you lock the garage door. Do things I tell them, don't leave the dog in the house, especially if they bite people. You know what I mean? All that security stuff. Spend some time with them to go over that because they may or may not be familiar with it. You're also going to be spending some time about staging the house. Like you're going to have to tell them that they're going to have to get up in the morning, get used to making the bed in the morning, vacuuming the floors, doing the dishes, you know. And the reason why is because you want to make the best impression. So you've got safety and security and the best impression as possible when people come into the house. I'm telling you, people pull up in front of a house or it doesn't look nice. A lot of people are not very imaginative. You know, if it doesn't look clean, they won't come in. You know, if it's dirty, they don't want to buy. I, they just don't. I mean, they just they don't want to do it. You know, not unless they have the mentality that say, oh, that's not a problem. I'll fix it. You know. Uh, so also talk to them about the key, the key, the lockbox, where the lockbox is going to be, that people are going to have keys, you know, that they're going to be able to come into the house, the people should come in. That's another thing you're going to want to tell your clients that what they should do is every single agent that comes in to look at the house, it's almost, it's not a written law, it's not written in con steel or concrete, but it's like an unwritten thing that all agents at a professional courtesy leave their business card behind. And so what you want to do is ask your clients to collect those business cards and that to call you or get in contact with you when clients come over. And the reason why is then that way you can contact the other broker and find out, hey, you know, you know, did the clients like it? Where's the deal? You know, and it's a way to show that you're actually doing stuff. Okay. Every time you have a client look in that house, every time you have somebody stop by, that's through your efforts because it wouldn't have happened before. Okay. Um, talks about a sign here, a sold sign on the property, um, so on and so forth. This is talking about attorney fees. Okay, so you got that part of the agreement. And then I'm kind of going to, this last part is uh, management approval. If you're an associate licensee in a broker's office, a uh, salesperson or broker, enters into an agreement on the broker's behalf and the broker manager does not approve of its terms, the broker manager has the right to cancel the agreement. Okay? Remember, even if you're a broker, if you're working again under the supervision of a broker, you know, in other words, they're all, they have the right to look at that a contract. So you want to get that broker to look that thing over and also for the fact that to make sure you didn't make any mistakes. Um, this is all about disputes, how to handle disputes and arbitration. And then finally down the bottom is where every single person signs and dates it and puts their phone number and, you know, names of the firm and everything else. That's the first part of the agreement. Okay, first part. Okay, zooming on from there. You have different types of listings. Remember, this is an exclusive listing. Other kinds of listings that you may very well run into are things like open listings, okay? An open listing is a written contract authorizing one or more brokers or their salespeople to act as an agent to sell a person's property, okay? An open listing means that, now when you really think about it, anytime you're doing something in life, there's always two extremes you're dealing with. One extreme is where you have exclusive control over the sale and who can sell that house, 
or property and who's going to get the commission. That's one extreme. The other extreme is where you don't have exclusive control, meaning that if other people do that work, they could get paid. Now, under an open listing, what that may be very well be is where an agent, where an owner is saying, listen, I want to just allow other brokers to be able to sell this house, so I'm going to let other people know, okay? What the advantage to that they think about is the fact that, hey, listen, by me having all these people working for me, the chances of me selling the house are really good. What they don't understand, though, is, is the minute that you put that thing in MLS, it's, it's available for everybody, okay? But the point, and the other disadvantage to this is, is that if I have a listing and any Tom, Dick, and Harry, any other broker can come in and sell it, why am I going to put my time and effort out on it? Okay? If I'm going to, add, if I'm going to put a, an ad in the newspaper and I'm going to put all my money behind it, all my advertising bu budget to find, have people drive by and see the house and then turn around and get somebody else to buy it, it doesn't make any sense to me. So from, a, from, a, from a, uh, an agent standpoint, an open listing, unless the market is hot as a pistol, and you're just dying to get listings makes no economic sense. You want something that you're going to put your time and effort into and you're going to get rewarded for your work. Okay? So anyway, uh, it says down here an open listing is little better than no listing at all as it is not placed in the MLS. I mean, it's just, it's not a, it's not a way that if you really want to sell property. Okay? That I think. Of course, I can always be corrected. The second kind of a list, oh, a couple other things. It says open listings are more often used on vacant land. I don't know whether that statement is necessarily true or not. I mean, land can be very difficult to sell. You'll find out that uh, a lot of times when lots are sold in subdivisions, what happens is, is that the commissions on them are more because it takes more effort to find buyers to buy them. Okay. It says open listings are the least desirable form of listings, one reason being that they don't benefit from the exposure of multiple listing services. They're not put in multiple because nobody has the right to put it in multiple listing. Okay? Multiple listing is really great because, like, I think I may have mentioned the last time when I listed my house, I had it with Remax, who was a broker locally. The agent that sold it wasn't even in, in our area. She was with a Colwell banker office in downtown Sacramento, which made absolutely no sense at all. Why? Where would that person ever come from? Well, it just so happens that I think it was like her sister or brother that was the one that bought the house and had asked her for the help because her parents already lived in the area and they were moving up from the Bay Area and needed some help in finding a house. That's how she ended up with it. Okay, but she would have not have known that house is for sale if it was not for the multiple listing system because all she essentially did was to go in and put a query in and say, give me a list of all the houses that fall into this price range that are located in this area, and then got a list of houses, and then took these people out and showed it to them. That's the way it works. We already talked about an exclusive listing. Uh, an exclusive listing is posted on the NMLS. It encourages participation in the sale of numerous brokers, resulting in the most exposure and the highest possible selling price. Cooperating brokers can share the commission as agreed. Okay? That's the most common. Okay? Most, most, most common. Um, you also have a couple other things in here. You have something called an exclusive agency listing. Um, uh, an exclusive agency is a listing uh, providing that one agent has the right to be the only person other than the owner to sell the property. That's what we mean by exclusive right to use to sell the property. That's what we're talking about. Okay. But this one says the only person other than the owner to sell the property during a specific... The owner, however, has the right to independently sell the property. That is not a good deal for you as an agent. Because what that essentially means is you go out, you put it in the system, you put the house sign outside, 
Now all of a sudden somebody comes by at, again, 9 o'clock at night, knocks on the door, takes a look at the house, says, this is wonderful. The only way they would have ever discovered the house was for sale is because the, you, the agent, had put a sign outside. You, the agent, had put an ad in the paper. But then they sell it, and then they get the commission, and you're out of it. That's not a good deal. Not for you, at least. Okay, so that's why we're going through these different kinds of listing agreements. Okay. There's another kind of listing here uh, that they talk about, not very, used very often, something called a net listing. Okay, a net listing is where you turn around and sell the property, and you talk about what the client is going to net out of it. Okay, like the client says, I need to net, I need to walk away with twenty-five thousand. That's what I need, net. Okay. Um, here it says, uh, here the compensation is not definitely determined. A net listing provides that an agent is to retain all money received in excess of a predetermined net price. So in other words, the client decides to sell the house for $300,000 and says, I need to walk away with $25,000. And you say, okay, I can, you know, I can do that for you, $300,000, but really the property is worth four hundred. dollars Okay. So I'm going to sell for four hundred, and I'm going to keep the hundred thousand dollar difference. You can see where they could come back to you and say, "You never told me what the property was really worth in the beginning." It can get to be a headache, a problem, I think at least. Okay. Anyway, so I think we pretty much. Let me see if there's anything else that we need to talk about. Um, I'm going to probably. I'm just looking at the clock now. We'll pick up the next time on this talking about the MLS on the internet. Um, when you list that house for sale, it's showing up in a lot of different places, okay? If you go to the Sacramento Bee's website, uh, one minute, okay? If you go to the Sacramento Bee's website and you look on their website, you'll see something called MetroList. That MetroList is a copy, if you will, of the information that they're ready, willing, and able to provide to the public of all the listings that are in the community, Okay, so when we talk about getting things on the internet, you know, or th you know, once you list the property, that's one of the ways that your clients, your possible clients, can find out that that house is for sale. So what I want to encourage you to do is, is that you should be looking at things like the Sacramento Bee and seeing how they're augmenting or helping people sell houses. MetroList is one of them. It's that's the name of the company, but that's how they're providing it. And you can look up by zip code. Price range, number of bedrooms, number of baths. And I'll talk a little bit more about that the next time. There's another one called Realtor.com, too, that you can utilize. Okay? So with that, I think we're pretty much near the end. We'll pick up the next time in show, seven, show 8 will be the next show. Thank you very much for coming.